this episode of the Triple Double Podcast. We break down the final two episodes of The Last Dance. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating. You can also listen on Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public. Interact with the show by sending us an email at tripledoublepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at TripDubPodcast. Enjoy the show. So we are finally into the last two episodes of The Last Dance. Matt, we made it. How you feeling? Oh, man, feeling great. It's the last dance of the last dance. How are you doing, man? Doing pretty good. Um, I guess let's not waste any time and let's hop into it. Episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance on ESPN. It's been a pleasure going down memory lane, not only with you, Matt, but along with the rest of America, just filling our minds up with nostalgia and just fond memories of this entire documentary. And we kind of start off in episode nine, man, with uh, Reggie Miller. And I want to get your not only overall thoughts of the trash talk between Reggie Miller and Michael Jordan, but did this live up to the hype um, when we got the teaser in episode eight? It was that kind of what you called a pro wrestling teaser of Reggie kind of teasing his rivalry with Michael Jordan in episode nine. I, I felt it was very little of that episode. Did you feel underwhelmed or were you satisfied? I think we're probably on the same page on this one. It did feel a little underwhelming to me, especially if you were someone who watched this Bulls team go through this second three-peat that they did. You remember how intense those series against the Pacers were and how much of a threat that they posed to the Bulls. You and I were, were texting back and forth as we were watching this. And it really, to me, felt like the Pacers were always a bigger threat than the Utah Jazz were, just with the way they were built, with kind of that cliche, tough ball, Eastern Eastern Conference basketball style that they had. Uh, and, and they had those bigs that could push the Bulls around, could push around Rodman and Longley and contend on the boards. And you you just never knew when Reggie Miller would catch fire. He's kind of the precursor to Steph Curry in, in many ways with how he could light things up from the three-point line. So, yeah, I, I'm with you, I think, uh, in that I don't think they really spent enough time uh, both developing and then covering kind of that rivalry from the, the Pacers uh, and Bulls series. Were you surprised? Um, I forgot which game it was, but um, it was one of the – um, games between the Indiana Pacers and the Chicago Bulls that after the post-game press conference, Reggie and Michael actually shook hands to hug backstage. Um, and we saw this with even him and Malone and Stockson later on. Were you surprised to see that just because Jordan is such a relentless competitor? Um, and do you think that plays into why athletes respect them so much? Because in the middle of this series, they were able to embrace and show that sportsmanship, even though on the court they're they're out to rip each other's hearts out. Yeah, it was it was a little bit shocking. I I don't know that first three Pete Jordan would have done this really, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw it in the documentary. It, it was a little bit shocking to see that, and I guess especially with Reggie Miller. I mean, Malone certainly was an intense competitor, really physical guy not afraid to, to throw you around and, and shove you around on the court as we saw highlights with Dennis Rodman. But with Miller, I remember the, the exchanges 
between him and Jordan. They showed that clip of them kind of hugging and pushing uh, in that, that fight in, I believe, game five, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe it was earlier than that. Um, so, so, yeah, to see them so friendly with each other right before the game uh, was, was really pretty stunning. Agreed. Um, I just love, I love seeing this footage of Reggie Miller just hitting that kind of game-winning shot, and then Jordan missing that shot. It was just a, such a, even though at the time I felt heartbroken, it was such a fond memory in my mind. Now looking back on it, because it was a memory of fear and a memory of the Bulls could lose, mm-hmm. and it was just fun, really reliving that. And I felt, especially with the footage, we never got really that fear portrayed in the documentary. And I, I thought that was a disappointment. Yeah. And it was, it was a legitimate threat. I mean, it was not very often you saw the bulls push to a game seven. So to see that happen and that, that pressure <laughs> for that team build. And, and I'm, I'm right with you. I remember watching the coverage on ESPN over and over again, showing that, that shove off that Reggie Miller did on that inbound pass as he was coming out, uh, they they were switching to Jordan covering him, and he just barrels into Jordan as as you all saw if you watched the the documentary. There there was a huge controversy over that shove for the entire week about gosh should they have called a foul and, and given the Bulls the ball, and then of course your other talking point like no you let the players decide at the end of games. It was a really, really big deal in the moment, and maybe it's, it's just hard. We know that, that they rushed to get this documentary done. Uh, I believe last Saturday they were completing the final episode and putting this all together. So, you know, maybe it's just one of those things that unfortunately gets lost in the mix. Do you think that this era of basketball with LeBron and Kevin Durant think it's a bad rap, just considering we just saw in the documentary – two rivals just treating each other pretty cordially and this era gets destroyed on social media for them being too chummy but yet in this documentary they seem pretty cool with each other you know backstage like even with um uh larry bird when they lost the series you know larry bird cursed at him but it seemed pretty cordial afterwards we we have this perception of such a cutthroat just you know kill be killed mentality but yet these guys still showed respect to each other but yeah, in this era with LeBron and Kevin Durant, and I'm guilty of it too. I'll put my name up there as well as doing this. This era just gets pretty much um, destroyed by kind of old school basketball heads of being too soft. Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting point and an interesting take. You know, I my guess would be it's it's kind of too far towards calling players soft or no rivalries at all. In this day and age, I players care, um, and and I think it's exaggerated in the other side. You know, we knew that um, Jordan and Barkley were friends for a long time. I guess that relationship hasn't been patched up since their little rift. Um, but you know, one of the theories out there, and I, I believe Bill Simmons was talking about this this week, uh, was that Jordan befriended Barkley as a way to kind of disarm him as a threat to the Bulls title runs and, and especially leading up into that Phoenix title in 93. So I, I think there may be less respect 
but more buddy buddy nowadays and maybe more respect back then between players but less buddy buddy in terms of in the press and away from backstage you know kind of kind of like wrestling which spoiler we might talk a little wrestling a little later <laughs> in the podcast here something with wrestling might come up so i i completely agree with you and just seeing that dichotomy in the previous episode i believe was the the space jam movie in the jordan dome very, like you said, a precursor to what happens now all the time. All these guys playing with each other, especially uh, most recently when you saw Kevin Durant play at the Rucker and you saw like all these other players um, kind of playing with each other, you know, earlier in, in the last previous decade. So I, I find that kind of um, that economy very interesting that really these two eras, I think, have a lot in common than we previously kind of assumed before watching this documentary. And one more thing I have to say, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how much AAU basketball has grown and, and how that's played a role in how players' relationships develop. So it may be that players just have so much more time around each other now that, we, I mean, we know Jordan and Carmelo, or I'm sorry, LeBron and Carmelo Anthony scoped each other out in their high school days playing in AAU against each other. So big chance that a lot of the rivalries are kind of diffusing earlier, even before they get into the NBA, because we have this time in high school through AAU for many of these players. And then we have maybe that year of college, maybe more if, if you happen to be one of those players that stays longer than a year in college now. And by the time they get to the NBA, it could just be that they are so used to each other at this point and they've both made it now that now it, it doesn't seem as spicy as when you are first maybe seeing these guys in a college championship game or like like we saw with like Ewing and Elijah or maybe the first time you meet that person on the court is in the NBA back in the 90s. For sure. Um, I want to move on, if you don't mind, to yeah. the um, Utah rivalry specifically. What were your thoughts overall? You can break down your uh, moments in the documentary that you really appreciate or stuck out to you, but your overall thoughts of how Utah was portrayed in this documentary? Because in my mind, being younger, and maybe this is this younger Justin talking, you know, talking right now, I thought they were a pretty significant part of the Bulls' dynasty in terms of that rivalry with those two meetings in the in the NBA Finals, specifically John Stockson and Carl Malone. What was your overall thoughts of how that team was portrayed in the documentary? Well, <laughs> you know, I think the Utah Jazz over the years have been built up um, to be a much greater rival to the Bulls than they maybe actually were at the time that you and I watched them as kids. Because it did feel like they were um, just this this massive powerhouse in the West, but really they stayed very similar and they were able to get extra wins when like the Vancouver Grizzlies came around during the expansion season. I mean, this stuff that the documentary <laughs> didn't dare speak of expansion of the league during Jordan's last three-peat, because why would they? Uh, and, you know, so so it is just maybe the... So I guess I guess one thing I'll say that that have to give them credit for is just kind of the the consistency and it shows 
how great a team can be. And they were great when you have consistent pieces together, when you are that, those guys at the YMCA that have played together for 10 plus years, you know, that's exactly what Stockton and Malone were. And then they got some really great veterans to come in there and and help out, namely Jeff Hornacek. Uh, So I, I think they were a great team. I don't see them. And maybe people will, will diss on me for this. That's okay. If you want to let us know your thoughts, but I, I didn't see them as big of a threat. Now, in the moment, it was different. But but looking back now, I don't really see them as threatening of a team as, say, the Seattle Supersonics, that team the Bulls went up against in 96. But in terms of the documentary, to kind of get, get back on track here to your question, I think they showed the Jazz with, with a lot of respect paid to that team. And again, I'm not trying to minimize them completely. They were a good team they were a threat to the bulls especially once pippen started having health issues with his lower back but um but i do think there's incentive in the documentary to to build that team up a lot what were your thoughts on them i thought they were portrayed correctly um carmelone's absence is notable so that was a little bit of a bummer i'll yeah. admit that um, and really only having one representative being um stockson i, I thought was interesting yeah. So I, th- I thought that was pretty, pretty noticeable in the documentary. And even with the Indiana Pacers, for that matter, um, we, we got Jalen Rose, of course, and Reggie Miller. It would have been nice to hear maybe from some other uh, members of that team as well. Um, I, I find it interesting for me because I have a it's weird because I have a soft spot for the Utah Jazz. Maybe mm. because I met Carl Malone at a car dealership when I was eight. Uh. <laughs> um, and also, you know, his wrestling ties too. So it's kind of, even though they were a rival of Chicago, like I, I, I love those teams, to be honest. Like I like Jeff Hornacek and I love Stocks and Malone. <laughs> I love that dichotomy. They're just playing my team. So I have to hate them, but right. I, I didn't, the animosity really wasn't there. It was more for the Indiana Pacers. It was more like a respectful challenge of the Utah Jazz rather than this hate um i had i I wanted to ask you also do you remember the the crowd of the utah jazz specifically i mean those arenas were insanely loud and i would dare to say more louder than chicago's home court in my opinion oh yeah by far by far yeah and i I was gonna say i actually had that in my notes that you know the bulls went up on that run especially in 97 i mean against two of the best home court advantages between indiana and then moving into uh, Utah, I mean, those Utah had, you could argue, the best home court advantage in that that mid-90s period of time. Uh, Delta Center was, was infamous for being loud, and I remember that being a huge factor watching the games. And it did always feel, maybe it was just that the announcers were hyping it so much, but, but it did feel to me watching the games that it was louder in Utah for sure. And you saw the uh, nose, the not nose, nose plugs, excuse me, earplugs. Um, yeah. <laughs> that Phil Jackson and some of the other uh, staff was wearing. I mean, that's a pretty dead giveaway that you're giving to your opponent. That clearly the crowd's getting to you. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, you're you're admitting a weakness pretty openly that this home court is a factor. So I thought I thought that was fascinating as well. Well, and then the comments with Jordan's kids. I mean, that was kind of shocking. That it was like they wouldn't even be anywhere in the arena other than downstairs away from everyone else. I mean, 
it's one thing to be a loud crowd, but you you really wouldn't expect that kind of a crowd in in Utah in Salt Lake City of all places. So that was that was a little shocking and maybe a little bit saddening to hear that it was it was that rough in that arena for Jordan's kids. I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, look at the the winning time documentary with Reggie Miller when Spike Lee had to go to Indiana as a New York Knicks fan. And mm. that town was totally against him and borderline racist. So with the mm. Utah Jazz, I mean, I'm not saying there was racism in this sense. At the same time, the hostility, I'm, I'm not I'm not surprised that they were kept away from that. So that that, that makes sense to me. I just made that, that kind of connection. It had very a lot of similarities because Spike Lee went alone and he was just chastised and just hated mm. by all those fans there. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting um, similarity. Yeah, I mean, there is there is power in having, like, the Utah Jazz, for example, being your main thing in Salt Lake City. I mean, your fans are going to get out and support you. I mean, see similar kind of things with the OKC Thunder, maybe, when they were having their successful run. I wouldn't say they were as loud, certainly, or, but but certainly you saw a lot of that same passion. So, so kind of interesting similarity, similarities between the Pacers and the Jazz in that sense, and the Bulls ran through both of them in these playoff runs. Agreed. So I guess let's get to one of the biggest stories in this documentary, and this is something that's in basketball lore forever. So if you're a basketball <laughs> fan and, and you don't know about this, I question how big of a fan you are, to be completely honest with you. And that is the infamous <laughs> flu game of Michael Jordan. Oh, and yeah. as we find out, it was a cause of a pizza bought in Salt Lake City. Now, this kind of goes against the story that was told on the NBA TV's open court, where it was more in terms of the kind of team in the team hotel. It was kind of more of a mystery as to what happened to Michael, but we get the answer. Why do you think this was really kept a secret for so long? I mean, he never named the pizza place. He never named the five guys that came to his door. He just said he ate a a bad, you know, box of pizza, made him sick. Why do you think this was such a massive secret? For for a long time, everyone assumed he just got the flu and just had like flu-like symptoms, but to find out he had the stomach bug. I mean, his stomach was just destroyed. So why why do you think this was such a big secret and was really displayed until now? Yeah, I think, I mean, as we've kind of seen throughout this documentary, it's kind of more Jordan style to be subtle, to not be speaking out about a whole lot. And so maybe this is just one of the things in the mix. I mean, obviously, I don't have close personal ties to Jordan, so so I can't answer with any kind of certainty. I but, wish. <laughs> but it seems, right, but it seems that, uh, you know, it's it's not like Michael Jordan to look back in the past. I mean, that was one of the things that they they mention in the beginning of episode 10 is like his gift of presence of mind and everything. So it may be that, he just doesn't want to dwell on it, and he has recognized how much that game just started to stack even further on his legacy and kind of another like notch in his belt, so to speak, or, or another trophy on the wall that he played through the flu game, or the food poisoning game, as, as maybe it should be <laughs> called. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's pretty, pretty amazing and, and maybe just kind of also symbolic of the times that we really did not have instant access to information in in a lot of cases. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts as to why that might be? 
I don't know, man. I, I was pretty shocked by that, to be honest with you. Just to hear all that information for the first time surprised me. And to your point, if that you know happened now in the social media age, do you imagine that rest that pizza place, that pizza restaurant, those five guys, all those guys would be on social media. It would leak out the TMZ. That pizza place would leak out. So either that place would be either a shut down or b infamous for sending a pizza that almost pretty much wrecked the chances of the Bulls winning a championship. So I just thought it was very interesting how that story still remained anonymous. I'm, I'm wondering now if we'll see TMZ and other kind of gossip websites investigate that angle of the story and we maybe see one of the identities, one of those five guys that delivered that piece of the Michael Jordan. I find that very interesting. Yeah, and to be fair, I have heard in other podcasts them mention you know the story that, that it is food poisoning. Sure. Like this this documentary wasn't the first time that that news came out, but but definitely like to your point, it was the first time that we've had Michael Jordan and and his trainer describe that night in in great detail. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think those guys spend jail time if if that happens in in 2020 and all this right. info gets out. <laughs> Agreed for sure. You can't um, just poison someone. <laughs> no, you cannot at all that is illegal <laughs> even in the state of utah I'm pretty just sure. trying to win a title <laughs> yeah exactly um <laughs> focusing on steve kerr i found that was really interesting also in the documentary his family history his father's assassination that's something that i've heard in previous podcasts but to a kind of common viewer that knows little about steve kerr's history i found that was really interesting what was your thoughts of including that in the documentary of well does that information get included if steve kerr doesn't have his prominence in coaching i think so just because of how big of a role steve kerr played in that 97 finals hitting that last shot um, or, or not the last shot because ku coach had the dunk afterwards but but the last jump shot let's say uh, and also that that legendary press conference, um, the the team celebration, his speech in in the uh, kind of trophy parade. Um, but you know, to me, actually, I I was not aware that that happened to Steve Kerr's dad. So that was a little bit shocking that uh, that that whole situation went down. Um, I don't know how I I had missed that. Being a pretty big Steve Kerr fan myself. Um, I guess it had just never come up or I hadn't listened to the same podcast as you, but uh, I thought it was, it was very respectfully done for one thing. It was nice because it gave Steve Kerr like this, this quick moment, which I don't think you'd want to devote as much time to him, to him as you did the starters of the bulls. But, um, but it gave him a little moment and it, I thought on you know, kudos to the director. It was a very nice segue leading into this this whole idea of Jordan trusting Kerr because they have they have the similar background, even though he clearly mentions that um, that Jordan and, and Kerr never discussed their fathers together. Yeah, I agree. Um, really sad just to hear that story and the emotions that Steve Kerr felt. Um, really just heartbreaking, yeah. heartbreaking stuff. Um, was there anything else that stood out? I mean, we saw the, the the shot that Steve Kerr hits, that infamous, you know, give me the ball, I'll be open. He hits the shot. Just a lot of, again, information from a common basketball fan. They would know this. 
Um, and then we we know about the Pacers continuing to push the Bulls to the limit. Was there anything else in episode nine that really stood out to you? I guess the very end of the episode, I mean, they mention uh, Gus, Michael's head of security. Uh, and that, that felt like a pretty big moment because they talk about him being like a, a secondary father figure uh, to Michael Jordan. So that was kind of cool to see. I mean, that was, that was more just something that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about. So I, I thought that was interesting and it was cool to see them once again, highlight the closeness that Jordan had with his security staff. Um, but other than that, that, that pretty much sums up episode nine for me. Yeah, I had the same thoughts, and it really stood out in my mind how NBA players now, they shut out the security staff when they're walking into the arena as well. Um, we usually see that whenever they are making their grand arrival. So that's that's cool to see. I wonder if maybe that had to do with Michael Jordan with his relationship with the security staff or not, but I thought that was a really cool tie-in. Um, mm-hmm. As we move into um, episode 10, I guess we might as well just get into it now. Um, Rodman uh, missing practice um, during during like a massive massive part. I believe it was at the NBA Finals. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. After Game and, Three, after that blowout yeah, game. Correct. He he just basically needs a break, and he appears on WCW. And I remember this really specifically. Um, and I'll, I'll tell the story from a wrestling point of view. Was that Dennis, as he was in basketball was hard to deal with also in the pro wrestling world and they really wanted Dennis to be a part of WCW and the person that was I would say running the promotion that owned it but was Eric Bischoff mm-hmm. pulled off this cue and he got Dennis Robbins to appear on Monday Nitro and specifically with WCW which was more of a southern wrestling company and owned on TNT they had a basketball tie-in because basketball was on was on TNT. So Dennis Rahman appearing on wrestling was a nice tie-in as well. And just remembering this happening, I thought it was great. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I didn't care that he missed practice. I mean, this is, again, child Justin here. I didn't really think about the consequences <laughs> for him or affecting the team. It, it didn't matter to me. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting how they featured that. And also, it was interesting. I don't want to get into a whole wrestling like, um, kind of this debate here, but I just thought it was hilarious how all the commentators were just in disbelief and shock and just disgust that Dennis Rodman went to a professional wrestling event and participated. It's just like, <laughs> it's the biggest disgrace ever. He's just this horrible teammate. He had committed this atrocity. Like, I just thought that was pretty hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what else can you say? I think you summed it up really nicely there. Um, you know, I, I do see it as a big deal that the that Phil Jackson especially wasn't in on it. He wasn't alerted to it at all. I mean, I think that is a big deal right in the middle of the finals. It's a little unprecedented to just skip a practice in the NBA finals. But, you know, what can you say? It's it's Dennis Rodman. And I, I think most people were aware that that went down. And, you know, it sounds kind of hokey to say, but at the end of the day, I'm Rodman did still perform in those finals. He, he came back and he was able to uh, certainly not lock down Carl Malone, but he was able to irritate him enough that the bulls got the job done. He did. I agree. Do you think Rodman was truly present and aware 
what was going on in his in his playing days. I mean, you mentioned here that MJ was always present. He was always focused on what he had to do. Robin seemed the opposite. I mean, you notice when he came back to practice after the whole wrestling debacle, how he was dressed. I mean, he he I mean, he just dressed like he got out of bed. <laughs> like he just seemed like the court is where everything turned on, but everything outside of it was checked out. I just find that really interesting because in this day and age, just to have a player like Rodman exists now would be almost unfathomable. And I think mm-hmm. it would be an accomplishment all to itself if he were <laughs> to pull it off. But I just think in this day and age it would be impossible. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't want to speculate, but I wonder how much substance abuse was a factor at the time. Um, you know, you got to assume he was he was not doing something obviously that affected him from performing on the court. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect, you know, complete alcohol abuse at the time or, or whatever. But uh, we do know that that, that has been in Rodman's history. Um, you know, what can you say? I mean, that's, that's Dennis Rodman <laughs> in, in a nutshell, kind of confusing, kind of sad in a way because, you know, we, you and I witnessed Dennis Rodman going to the Mavericks and going to the Lakers after his career with the bull and just kind of floundering out of the NBA after this 98 season. Um, so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but, um, but he had, he had a great run and he's obviously arguably the best rebounder in NBA history. Speaking of that transitioning to Michael Jordan, it, the documentary focused on his presence of mind. And I want to ask you, you have here that he never really fixated on his past and future. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Because, you know, clearly he holds he held grudges against people in terms of motivating him in the game. Can you kind of contextualize that in terms of how he had grudges and he has things that motivate him, but yet he was always present in the game like he played with such a calmness and such a, a menacing calmness that he was never out of control and never, I don't know, you, you never saw him like I would say Kobe did where he was taking a insane amount of shots just because he had to. Um, can, he, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, maybe what sets Jordan apart and maybe what, what drives this home is, yes, you could look at holding a grudge as fixating on the past, but instead... Jordan would hold a grudge to benefit himself in the present, if that makes sense. So he's, he's not really thinking like, gosh, what if I had performed better against Gary Payton in game five of the NBA finals in 96, he's saying, Oh, okay. You know, Nick Anderson says 45 can't play. I'm going to come back with number 23, the very next game. And I'm going to, just nail you in the moment. And I think the, the better example would be if we look at the, the interview clips specifically, there's one in episode 10 that talks about uh, a reporter wants to know, you know, Jordan, are you coming back next year? Are you thinking about how nice it's going to be to win title number six? We know you're focused on the job and, but you know, this is something that people want to know. And he he just says right away, like, the job isn't done. Let's get to work, get the job done, and there will be time to celebrate if we get it done. So I think that's that's very cliche nowadays. That's that's a very cliche answer. 
But with Jordan, there's, I think, a sincerity about it because he does have that presence of mind that they discussed in, in the very opening of, of episode 10. He does. And also what I found interesting was him knowing how to manipulate the media and mm-hmm. basically saying things without saying it. And I think he was a great master at that. He was very charming with the media. Even if the media got nothing, they would be like, oh, Michael, you're so, such a great guy. Like, you gave me nothing for my story. But you said it in such a way. It's Michael Jordan. So <laughs> anything he says, it's going to make headlines in the story, even though he didn't answer your question at all. And basically kind of blew you off. So I, I thought that was um, just really fascinating, his relationship with the media. Because he's such a guarded person, but yet the media had such a fondness over him as compared to now where we see players, I think, be more honest than ever. But yet either A, they get killed for it, or B, they're not honest enough. So I just I, I find that really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you see even that footage in, in the same sequence of Jordan with his headphones on, getting on the team bus, you know, he's kind of rocking out with the headphones on. And then he walks into the stadium with the headphones on. Reporters are, are trying to get questions from him. And he's not really, he's not answering any of those questions because he is focused in the moment. He's getting ready for the game or the practice, whatever. I, I think it was game one of the finals uh, that they were, they were leading up to in that sequence. Um, but he's, he's just kind of nodding. He's saying, yes, no, whatever. And the media guys, they didn't take that personal at all. They didn't, they didn't say, he's making a mockery of my job. They were laughing as, as he's making these, as he's walking by them and blatantly ignoring them. Yeah, man. Do you just imagine that happened now? It'd just be such a massive controversy. How dare he disrespect, disrespect the media like that and not answer their questions? <laughs> He's checked out. I mean, it'd be all these questions would be just be happening if he did that. Now I find that um, this really the eras just really kind of uh, defined through this entire documentary. Um, so episode ten focuses basically as you would expect the Bulls winning their final championship. Um, Pippen's lower back injury, um, MJ basically carrying the Bulls to the Game 6 win. Um, like you said here, Matt, um, just Pippen playing hurt, acting like a decoy. Mm-hmm. And I guess you can just take take me through specifically the, the game that I think is the hallmark of Michael Jordan's career. Here's the shot over Byron Russell. In this documentary, did it uncover anything you didn't know? Or was it just more of a great trip down memory lane? I would I would go with the latter, the the great trip down memory lane. I do remember watching that game in the moment at the time and thinking it was so weird, all these trips that Pippen was making back into the training room. And, and I mean, of course, you felt horrible for him that he's he's dealing with this back injury because in you know, a lower back injury and trying to play in the any type of basketball. I mean, ba- basketball at the YMCA on Saturday morning, let alone the NBA Finals is, is just terrible. Um, so I do remember that being a very, very strange game, that game six with the uncertainty of Pippen. And it was just such such a grind, really. Uh, I mean, through game five and six with the Bulls kind of kind of whittling down a little bit, so to speak, and, and Jordan just coming through at the end there. Uh, I thought they did a great job kind of chronicling that that last shot 
Um, I don't know. I'll throw to you because you're you're the ultimate Bulls fan, man. What did you think of um, that moment of the last shot? Did they do it justice? Did they do enough just right? I liked how it portrayed Jordan after the shot, just being so exhausted in his anxiety of what was going to happen after that. I thought that was really good because in a lot of people's minds, you would think that would be it, that the game's over, but it wasn't. You know, to see his fear um, and as his anxiety come to light, I thought that was a really highlight um, of this entire sequence. But like you said, Matt, this was basically a lot of footage that we, you know, we seen before. And really it was great for me just re- reliving, you know, that shot. I know I was in my parents' living room, just jumping up and down when he hit it. It was, it was pretty amazing to me um, what happened there. And just to win on the, the opposing team's floor and just to see those fans just in complete shock. Um, it was a <laughs> unforgettable, unforgettable sight to me. Um, just watching that. I think in some ways even sweeter. Uh, I, I, I have a poster in my garage of the last shot where Jordan is is in color and the fans and everything behind the backboard are in black and white. And it is it is awesome to just look through <laughs> the faces of the crowd as, as that shot is up in the air and just see see the dread. And I think most of them know that shot is going in. Uh, because it's it's out of Jordan's hand at that point in in the picture, um, but yeah, I I think um, I think you're right on in the director really highlighting uh, the anxiety after that. I think that's a great point that you bring that up because that's something that we didn't see as fans and and we don't remember as as fans. And even in the moment watching the game, I'm sure you saw him sit on the bench, but you know, there's everything going on in, in the timeout. They're shooting out to the media or sideline reporter, what what have you, uh, bracing for that last play. What What is your thought on the push-off? And kind of you had Bob Costas commenting on that, the push-off from Brian Russell to get that last shot off. I feel turnabout is fair play. Like, look at the series before that with Reggie. Like, he pushed off, he got the shot. Like, you know... I'd rather not call the foul in that instance. And I felt like he pushed off a little, so it could have gone either way, but it's it's Michael Jordan. I mean, that ref would live in infamy if he were to call that foul. And I just think you'd be such a massively gutsy call um, to call an offensive foul like that. I think it'd be... I don't know. I think it'd be such a controversial moment. I think at the time, Michael Jordan, his star power was a factor in him not calling that foul, in my opinion, because it was was just like a light touch or like a heavy push. Some people did it. I mean, that was that was offensive foul, um, I think. But nevertheless, I loved it. I'm glad it was a no call for me, benefited me as a fan Um, (laughs) at the same time. Looking back on it, it was a little bit of a push for sure. But I don't think it's like this egregious massive push that he you know used to you know star wars powers and just pushed him completely out of the way he did see him russell it seemed off balance and jordan just kind of gave him that nudge and he, he took the shot so um i think in the nba it was a lot more you can get away with a lot more pushing and shoving that than as of now i don't i don't think he's able to get away with that yeah interesting i i, I actually would lean harder into they made the right call because it wasn't a foul at all. Sure. Like I, I think Russell commits to thinking Jordan's driving 
with his right hand. And so he angles back like that. And there's not really a, a huge push you can give someone when you are going the opposite direction of them. So while it looks aggressive, like Jordan's, Jordan's hand pushing by his hips. But really, if you look at where Jordan is going in that, the, the more I see that clip, the more I think, yeah, good, good no call for sure. I mean, we're, we're definitely in agreement there. And, and I also just think that actually, I, to Bob Costas's credit, I think he gave a good description in that no more force than a maitre d' at a, at a restaurant guiding you towards right. your chair. I, I do think that was a pretty spot-on analogy. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, before we kind of move on to kind of the last part of the documentary regarding, I guess, some resentment or feelings of unfinished business, overall, in terms of the Bulls winning that second three-peat, I, I think I know the answer of this question, but... Were you satisfied of the behind-the-scenes footage that we saw? Because to me, I was left pretty empty. I mean, I really wanted to see the, the feelings of what was going on in that locker room against Utah. And I hope, hopefully we hear from the director. He said there's really nothing interesting to really add to it. But I'm just mm. curious, just, just, just maybe just peek behind the curtain of you know, them facing the jazz and that the anxiety, the pressure, I'm sure in that locker room, there was a lot of feelings of Robin just, you know, taking off. Like you said, without giving anybody advanced warning. Like yeah. I'm sure it wasn't all hunky dory. Pippen was, you know, still hurt. I mean, there was a lot of issues with that team. I just find it interesting that again, this documentary was set up with footage around the last season. And yet in the playoffs, we saw minimal footage. Am I being too harsh? I don't think so. I mean, especially when you consider the documentary starts off with a bang, as it should, like really going hard at Jerry Krause and the drama of the front office and everything and, and just saying, like, Phil Jackson saying, you know, we, we didn't talk about it again after Jerry Krause told me it's my last year, blah, blah, blah. Um, so... So you would think that there would be, I mean, I get the team being relieved about winning the title in a way and celebratory as far as that goes. But I have, I mean, I, I can't do anything other than completely agree with what you just said in that. I really wish there was a little bit more. I wish there was more from the Pacers series too, when they went to game seven, uh, they, they did touch on the pressure of a game seven a little bit, which was nice. Uh, but we had two final series against the Jazz, and in my opinion, very little coverage um, until they won the title. And then you get a lot of uh, kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, nothing nothing monumental, but you see like Jordan playing piano, celebrating, etc. I thought that was cool, seeing him celebrate. Um, I thought that was neat to see. Um, of course, we see the team parade and the gathering of the fans in Chicago. And I guess as we end our recap, I'll, I'll ask you with, with Michael Jordan, do you think this final season, and specifically the ability not to go for another title, haunts Michael Jordan? As Michael Wilbon put it on SportsCenter just 20 minutes ago, I was watching it. You know, that season was shortened by the lockout. I mean, it was only 50 games or so. That was very doable for a team that was considered old and under last legs. It was still fairly possible for the Bulls to really 
go far, even with just Michael by himself and putting some parts around him. Um, do you think overall this haunts Michael to this day? Or do you think, I mean, he said, you said it yourself, it says right here, maddening to leave at his peak. Do you think mm-hmm. this still haunts him in terms of even him being an owner now? Or do you think maybe he has peace? I mean, I know that's an impossible question. I'm basically asking you to be a mind reader. But from what <laughs> you gather from this documentary, um, what, what were your opinions of just MJ and his kind of overall feel of not being able to capture that seventh title? Yeah, I've referred back to this article before, but that ESPN, the magazine article by Wright Thompson, I believe, um, that kind of chronicles Michael Jordan, the owner and the the competitor as an owner and how that has been such a struggle for him to have less personal control than you do, obviously, when you're you're on the court determining the outcome of games. You'd have to believe, you know, reading that, seeing everything else that Jordan comments on uh you'd have to believe that he's sincere when he says it was it was maddening that he retired after after 98 of course i mean any team would have signed him but we had all those circumstances play out and i also you know i'm i'm a little surprised in and this is going maybe off topic a little bit but but i'm also surprised we don't in the 93 retirement we don't hear anything from Jordan about, gosh, I wish I would have come back and we would have won eight straight NBA finals, you know, just 91 through 98 run the table. I'm a little surprised knowing what we know about Jordan that, and given, I, I know the circumstances around that 93 title, but I am a little bit surprised that he didn't say like, gosh, I wish I would have just kept stacking rings if, if that would have happened for him. Um, I don't know, but what are your thoughts on his competitive nature and kind of, I mean, I, in my opinion, the best part of episodes nine and 10 were those last 15 minutes of this documentary where they're all kind of talking about the possibility of that seventh ring. Yeah, I feel you. Um, I agree with you. I think with the 93 season, it was more of him ending it on his terms. Like it was him deciding to go to baseball um, him, he was burnt out, and he had the control of the wheel. And like you said, this was out of his control. I mean, this decision to break up the team was made before the, the season started, um, and he had, didn't have any input. Jerry Krause made the decision. So it was really out of his hands, and I think there's a lot of resentment that goes with that as compared to when he you know, went off to play baseball and retired. It was more like he pursued his dream. Like, A, it didn't work out the way I think he would have liked to, but at least he made that choice himself, where I think that's the last three-peat. He didn't have any say. And I think that that goes to your point of him being an owner. He didn't have control. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why it haunts him so much. Mm. Let me ask you one more thing. Um, you know, and maybe we've got a couple other topics to cover. But uh, Jay Adonde had a quote this week where he said, you know, fans need to keep in mind that this is a documentary. This isn't journalism. It, although he, in the same comment, and, and now I'm not directly quoting, uh, but to paraphrase, he was also saying that, yes, this grants us access to a lot of footage. Obviously, this circles around what you and I have talked about, about Jordan's production company owning this footage and, and deciding what can be released, giving that final stamp, so to speak. 
how how much of this documentary i don't know if you want to do percentages or, or just kind of relative amount how much of this documentary now that we're at the end and, and we're wrapping up here um how much of this documentary would you say is journalism and how much of this is lore building for michael jordan i would say you have to define what is your term of journalism, right? And to me, the thing is, is that this is not journalism. Jay Donde's right. I mean, Jordan had the final say so to use his footage or not. That's it's game over, game set match, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, with journalism, the the object of writing a story and to maintain sources is that. You're not having anyone else have your influence over your story except the person writing it. So if this was an independent um, production, so if Jordan was not involved, but they got him on the record, then I would say we'd be be in a different story here. But considering how much Jordan was involved and also how much he was in this documentary, I mean, look at Mm -hmm. really, this is a Jordan documentary. This is the... I mean, this is not like you said before. This should not be called the Last Dance. This is Jordan D. Requiem Collection. I mean, this is basically mm-hmm. again, like I said before. There's all these great documentaries out there. This is kind of the Marvel's in-game to all those '90s documentaries. All those um, excellent pieces of work that's on Thirty for Thirty now. It all leads to this. Everything ties in. From Magic Johnson, you know, announcing he has AIDS, to um, the Bad Boys documentary, to the Lakers um, Celtics dynasty, to Jordan rides the bus, to Winning Time, all those lead to this documentary here, and those bits and pieces that you see that were mentioned in this documentary, you can watch on Thirty for Thirty right now, and that was the it's the epitome of that. So mm-hmm. to me, I don't think of this as great journalism. I think as this as a ending of a puzzle that was really created on ESPN. And I don't think that was the, the, the intention. Like, I don't think they were thinking of, hey, let's just tie this in into all the 30 for 30s. I don't think that was the um, kind of mission from the onset. At the at the same time, I do think there, there are just a lot of similarities and a lot of stories that you can kind of get more further information. But I think J.A. did Adonis right. I think it, it can come off as kind of snooty and dismissive, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Just because, yeah. to me, if you look at it, that the criticism of Michael is is minimal to none. Um, you right. don't see anybody else coming out at him against, hey, he should be more political. You don't see anybody, even though people call him names and call him such a bad teammate, they still respect him in the end. You don't really see anybody show super animosity against Michael, even Isaiah. Yeah, um, yeah. So overall... I, I don't think so. Again, I think this is a great documentary for those. I might be giving my review here, but we'll go into it more next week when we give our kind of final takeaways. But I think this is a documentary for those who had had no idea what the Bulls dynasty was about. They don't really understand the significance of Michael Jordan. It's great for that. However, if you're looking for a balanced piece of Michael Jordan's life, you're, you're not going to find it in this documentary. Yeah, I I think that's... That's totally fair, and you are right, and and something that we've highlighted on to maybe uh, temper our own expectations is, again, that factor of Jordan having so much control over the production of this 
all in all, I think, you know, I agree with, with everything you just said there. So I won't add too much, but it is to your point, kind of the, the chronicling in a way of the, the NBA's golden age. Uh, and you have a very good, um, kind of in summary of that in when David Stern at the end of the documentary mentions how many countries the NBA expanded to, uh, after the end of the 98 season. Uh, so I think this is, this is a great piece to watch. I mean, especially if you're a Bulls fan to relive those glory days for one thing, this is a great piece to watch. If you want to see some of the interaction behind the scenes between some of those legends, some unexpected things like that. Um, and it's, it's a really good documentary. I felt to show the, the pressures that come with massive superstardom uh, and the, at least in, in the nineties, what that looked like. Yeah, I agree with you. That entire decade transformed the history of the NBA. It was, you know, Magic and Birds, you know, saved the league. It was Jordan that took it to superstardom. And we're seeing, you know, the fruits of the league's labor right now. And it's because of that 90s decade. And I think what was the strength of this documentary is what others criticized was the the access that it was kind of a trade-off. If you were let the if you were to let Michael Jordan have full rights to sign off on this you were going to get him give his opinion in full interviews and i think it was worth it i think the trade-off was worth it because i think a lot of his opinions a lot of what he had to say i did not know about and just to hear it come from his mouth it it, it means so much more as opposed to just re honestly reading it in a book or just kind of hearing a, like a podcast of him just talking for like 30 minutes um I think he's on the record in saying all these things. The documentary is done, and that's it. You kind of put it to bed. Um, but again, if you're just looking for kind of that unbiased look, you're not going to find it here. But honestly, this is the most we ever heard Michael Jordan talk. This is the most we ever seen a most Jordan emotional. Just this reclusive figure we get to see, as Jackie McMullen put it, as a human being. And and I'll take that all the way. And I think I wouldn't want more because I want – the lore to live on and and there is lore tied to michael jordan that really annoys me we can talk about that at another time i don't want to talk about it now but i i would prefer that you know i i kind of prefer it this way more more subtlety he's not going to be you know posting his workout on instagram tomorrow or <laughs> or anything like that it's it's uh kind of a nice i don't know nostalgia in a way i guess but but then another thing that I think is, is cool about this documentary is you hear people building up Jordan as this charismatic personality is how he, he takes over the room, et cetera. And you see that in, in those clips clearly, but I think you also still see that very clearly in his interview. I don't know. There's just, and it's, it's impossible to separate it from emotion and nostalgia but I do think you see that even as someone, I would imagine, again, I can't, can't say for sure, but as someone, as a, a young NBA fan who never saw Jordan before, I think you're going to see that charisma in his interview segments. And when he's watching clips of Gary Payton saying the series would have been different and just laughing uh, out loud at that, uh, I think you see that, that charisma that he still carries to this day. 
Yeah, I feel you because I don't think we get just an athlete being able to give their opinions on their entire career like this, um, broken down in this documentary form. So I think that that, I, I don't take that for granted. Um, we're kind of coming up against our time, man. Was there any other points you kind of wanted to touch on before we say goodbye this week? I've, I would just say I think they did a great job ending this documentary. I would say, you know, kind of, again, the, the mild criticism, which isn't really a harsh criticism because you and I, I think, both loved this documentary. Um, it felt very rushed, episode 9 and 10. We touched on that with Indiana and the Utah series, wanting more detail on those. There was a lot of info to cover. I think they could have gone... 20 episodes depending on how the footage was um but you know it's it's great to be here i'm glad that this content exists for everyone to watch to go back on if you want to really live the jordan era again this is a, a great documentary for that uh it was it was cool to hear as well about just the the emotional ending of the team from the Phil Jackson perspective, that meeting that they had at the very end where they all brought pieces of paper, wrote down their thoughts, feelings over this last season, and they burned them in a coffee can. I mean, of course, Phil Jackson's Zen master, of course he's going to have your team do something like that. Any final thoughts from you? No, yeah, I agree with you. That was cool to see like that the team really just being able to appreciate what they had burn it and then move on and, and, and reconcile with that. Um, I don't think Michael Jordan has necessarily done that. <laughs> I think that was maybe good for, I don't know, a, a few years or so, but I think now looking back on it, I think all those feelings are, are coming up again um, of just what if, and you know, we had that opportunity and we, you know, let it go. But it was just, it was really cool just to hear all these stories. Really. I think cool hearing all the stories outside of the documentary too. Um, mm -hmm. So, Overall, I think this has been great, and I think we'll kind of give our more um, general thoughts and our uh, kind of cr more critical review next week. But overall, I've enjoyed it. I think it's been a, a great trip down memory lane, and again, a great piece of, um, of, I guess you would say, it might be borderline bad to say this, but art. Um, mm -hmm. And just basically set them up for any kind of sports fan to see. Um, so... You know, if you happen not to catch all of this, I would implore you just to, to watch this if you are not um, privy to what happened in the 1990s, because this this will pretty much um, cover it and really highlight the importance of Michael Jordan. And you really have to watch the whole thing because of how yes. it's tied together and how it jumps around. So if you caught an episode or two, you really have to go back and and watch the rest of it if if you found that episode compelling at all, which if you like basketball, how could you not? Agreed, agreed. Um, that's going to wrap up our show. Next week, what we're going to do is that we're going to take we're going to break down our takeaways of The Last Dance and also give our final review as well. Right now on our podcast feed is an interview with KRQE Sports Director Van Tate out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and radio personality J.J. Buck from 610 The Sports Animal. Again, check us out on social media, Twitter, on Facebook, and listen to us on any um, podcasting app you may got. So from Stitcher, Spotify, um, Anchor, you can find us on any kind of platform to listen to our podcast at your leisure. 
Um, so if Matt, um, did you have anything else you wanted to say before we say goodbye? Uh, in the style of the Bulls, Justin, I'll just ask you, what time is it? <laughs> it's game, game time. time. <laughs> <laughs> Peace out, and we'll see you next week.